sister Know the water's sweet But blood is thicker Oh, it's the sky Welcome to the Reformed Brotherhood Brothers don't shake hands Brothers gotta hug I'm Tony And I'm Jesse Brother? I'm gonna have a brother? <laughs> I've always dreamed about having a brother If you'd like to join our brotherhood You can join our Facebook group you can email us at reformbrotherhood at gmail.com, or you can find us on Twitter at reformbrohood. You can also subscribe and rate us on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Hey, brother-in-law. Hey, brother. Hey, brother. Happy New Year, Tony. Happy New Year. It's crazy. Last time we recorded, we were together in uh, Enfield, New Hampshire. The motherland, if you will. The motherland, yes. And now it's 2017, so what I want to know right off the top is, what one thing are you looking forward to in 2017? Oh, man. Uh, well, this is like a super immediate news release, but we may be interviewing Mike Horton sometime in 2017, so that's that. Best year ever. I know. It's not for like another couple months. Uh, he's got a new book coming out, and we are hoping... That we may be able to do some interviews with him, which would be pretty epic. I'm pretty excited about that. I'm not going to lie. Yes. But I suppose a more real answer is the first uh, Schwamm baby, which we talked about uh, a couple weeks ago with mom. The the new little one coming along should be pretty exciting. It's big news. Big news. <laughs> it's like we forgot how to podcast, guys. It's weird. <laughs> it's been so. What's what's going so on long. in your world, Jesse? So I'm looking forward to, in 2017, this is something we also kind of talked about before, but I'm just going to throw it back out there. I'm looking forward to becoming more like John Stamos, which is basically your answer. <laughs> yes. So it's like because the same answer. every time, honestly, every time I say to somebody casually, like an acquaintance or a coworker, that I'm going to have a nephew and this is like the first grandchild in my family. They, that person inevitably, after like two seconds of consideration, gets really excited. And everybody always says, you know who you're going to be, right? And I'm always <laughs> like, yeah, I, I know. And at first I was a little bit kind of like, I'm not really digging this, the Uncle Jesse association with Full House. But then I've just embraced it. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm down with it. He was like the cool uncle. And he was. then I happened to catch like a couple of episodes just last night, actually, with my wife of Fuller House. And I was like, yeah, I guess I can be down with this. Like, there are worse things to be like associated with. Did did you um did you watch any of the new show? I mean, I know you said you caught a couple episodes, but did you watch any of the new show yet? Not, re- not really. So like, I was totally confused because my wife is in season two, and I was also admittedly okay. reading a book about <laughs> um, like behavioral economics at the same time that this was on. So I wasn't like totally devoted to it, but I was like, why are they in the same house? And like, I don't understand who these all these other extra people are. So I I, yeah. I don't have like the full context. Am I missing like a lot? Um, no, I mean, I, I think it was really just more of an excuse to be nostalgic is really what that show is all about. Um, but what's weird though, is like when it came out, there was all this like controversy about how like dirty it was, but it's not like really dirty, but there was like all this controversy about, well, I'm really nostalgic for like the good old days with full house and how, just how wholesome it was, but it, it really wasn't that wholesome. I think people just don't remember it clearly, but there's a lot of episodes where like, it's implied that Uncle Jesse is bringing women home at night. Right. And they're like there in the morning. They're like, there's like women who are there at breakfast and stuff. So there's a lot of that stuff that's like under the surface that 
I think either maybe because when I was watching it, I was like a young kid, like maybe like 11 or 12 years old. And so I didn't catch that stuff. Um, or just like the background culture was obviously not like holy, but it was less sexualized than our culture is now. So compared to uh, the general culture, Fuller House is pretty tame still. Um, and Full House was pretty tame compared to the general culture, but the culture has degraded so much by then, since then. What? Full House is not confessional? I know. Crazy. They were like doing catechism questions on the episode. <laughs> how, how awesome would that be? Like all those quintessential scenes where like they're all getting tucked in at night. They're just like question 192. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Danny Tanner tucks in little Michelle and is like, all right, Michelle, what's the chief end of man? <laughs> Michelle's like, the chief end of man is to enjoy God and to glorify him forever, dude. I was so waiting for your Michelle impression. That was what I was waiting yeah, for as I saw that. I wasn't going to try. Michelle's voice really dropped pretty early in her career. Uh, child actors. It's So I think the real problem. question with the new the new baby coming along uh, is which which full house character catchphrase are we going to try to teach the baby? Oh, man, that's a good question. I'm trying to think. I'm thinking how rude is probably the way to go. That's probably like some of the most iconic, right? Like, what are the yeah. other ones? Like, cut it out, cut it out, or like, hey, dude. People we are can't just... teach him any of Uncle Jesse's because those are going to have to go to you. But yeah, like, what is that? It's like, sweet mercy and yeah, have mercy, have mercy, and that kind of stuff. Yeah, I, I feel like I do. So there is part of me that feels like I need to do the research and pick those up now. I at least need to be yeah. like cognizant of them. Yeah, we'll have to pick a catchphrase for the the little baby to learn and we'll have to work on that every time we see him. Yeah, there, I've sensed a really great burning burden now to like fully develop the character in my own yeah. way. So I'll just have yeah. to get on that. I need some help with that. Hold me accountable. Yeah, we can work on that. Yeah, that would, that would be Maybe great. we'll put up a poll in the group so people can vote on what the best full house catchphrase was and what we should teach to our new uh, incoming nephew. Honestly, when we were talking about what I look forward to in 2017, I was just going to say Jesus just to like Jesus juke the whole situation. Yeah. And also because like all of my Sunday school training was leading me in that direction. Uh, And especially because we're going to do some Christology action tonight. We are going to do some Christology action tonight. Systematic theology in the house, in the podcast. Yeah. So if this is your first time tuning in, um, you should go back to... um, I don't remember the episode numbers off the top of my head, but the first one is uh, called Creator of Heaven and Earth and Truffles. Uh, and the next one is called Your Least Heretical Life Now. So this is part three of our systematic theology um, sessions. So you should go back and listen to those because um, we haven't really talked a lot about what systematic theology is. But um, just like Jesse was a little confused coming into the second season of Fuller House, um, you might be a little bit off pace if you come into the third episode of systematic theology and haven't talked about the other stuff because we're going to be relying and referring to some of the terms that we developed in the last episode, especially on this one. Plus, we just want you to download more podcasts. Yes, yes. We also have new tracking software that uh, we would love to inflate the numbers artificially. We're watching. Not you. that that helps us with anything, but. So, what's the deal with Christology? Like, why is that something that you wanted to bring up tonight? Sure. So, so a little bit of um, preface is is Christology traditionally, in, at least in reform circles, 
um, is usually kind of a two-part affair. There's a discussion of sort of the metaphysics um, of the incarnation. We talk about the hypostatic union. We'll talk about what that is um, tonight. And then there is a section called the work of Christ. Um, and that usually centers around um, kind of the specifics of what is accomplished in the atonement. And um, in in that discussion usually is covered the different kind of atonement theories. So um, as we've said before, this is an hour-long show um, usually, and we don't have time to do an extensive course on the whole thing. So um, we probably will loop back to some of the atonement discussions when we get to soteriology or the doctrine of salvation. But for tonight, I think we're going to focus kind of on the um, the metaphysics of who uh who Jesus is and what, how the incarnation actually functions as far as we can tell from scripture. Does that make sense, Jesse? Yeah, that's perfect. Because as we discussed, this is such a huge topic. So, and there's all these wonderful nuances to it. So it's a bit like saying like define God and give two examples. It, it would just be impossible yeah. to actually encapsulate it. So I liked the idea of narrowing it down. And yeah, I, I like that focus because we need to, or at least I need to sometimes remind myself that the Bible in its entirety is a book about Jesus. So in the Old Testament, we have Jesus being predicted. When we get to the New Testament Gospels, we see Jesus revealed. When we read Acts or the Apostles, we're discovering that Jesus is being preached. And of course, when we get to the Epistles, we're seeing that Jesus is being explained. And then of course, we get to all the way to the end to Revelation, we find that Jesus is expected. So Jesus is absolutely central. So I really love diving into all the different pieces of Christology because I find it to be like so warming, so full, so rich, and it's really the center of our faith. There's everything else or a lot about everything else is is the spokes which emanate from Jesus himself, the the Godhead in flesh. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, we talked about when we talked about the Trinity that that that's a doctrine that's really at the center of our faith, but unfortunately a lot of Christians don't um, they don't really have the understanding of what that doctrine actually teaches. Um, and I don't mean like a, a full orbed technical understanding, but even just a basic, um, you know, conversant understanding of the doctrine. And the doctrine of the incarnation or the hypostatic union um, in many ways is kind of the flip side of the Trinity. So in the Trinity, we talk about one singular indivisible nature that's shared among three persons, right? But when we get to the incarnation, we're actually talking about two natures that um, a single person possesses. Um, so a lot of the things that we talked about, the questions that we have to answer in the Trinity, we have to kind of answer the opposite question in the incarnation. Um, and so the two doctrines are so interwoven um, I almost feel like sometimes they should be taught as kind of one complex of doctrines, um, but it really becomes such a huge task to do that, that they, they kind of necessarily get split up a little bit. It's like two sides of the same coin in, in a way. And absolutely. Yeah. I like that saying, like you're, you're kind of confronting not necessarily the opposite problem, but just the opposite hurdle. So right. we spoke so much about like the simplicity of God, but then we get to the hypostatic union, fully God, fully man. We have to really try to understand how can we articulate these in such a way so that there's there's no confusion between the two, uh, there's no commingling, yeah. um, or, or you know they're complete. Gee, Jesse, where did you get those words from? <laughs> it's almost like we love theology. It's almost like there's a historic definition which was written by the Council of Chalcedon in 451. Was there? There was. Let me read it. So um, we talked about when we did the Trinity um, section, we read the Nicene Creed. And the Nicene Creed, which was originally drafted in uh, 425, 
at the, or sorry, 325 at the uh, First Council of Nicaea, um, was then sort of modified and ratified, um, adjusted and expanded in certain sections at the Council of Constantinople in uh, four, or in uh, 381. And then uh, in 431, there was another council, was the Council of Ephesus, which really um, tried to talk. We'll talk a little bit about uh, the different heresies that are present. We're not going to spend a lot of time on them, but we'll talk about the different Christological heresies. And in 431, they were dealing with a heresy called Eutychianism. Um, and then, then 20 years later in 451, there was a fourth council, was the Council of Chalcedon. And at Chalcedon, they added what in a lot of ways was kind of an amendment or an addendum to the Nicene Creed. Um, they kind of considered it um, sort of a, an add-on or an expansion to the creed. Um, and I'm just going to read it here. And I, I'm not sure exactly what this translation is. Um, but like the Nicene Creed, and actually even more so than the Nicene Creed, the Chalcedonian definition has been relatively untouched um, for the, what is that now, the almost uh, 1,500 years since it was drafted, a little bit more than 1,500 years. So I'm just going to read it, and then I'll unpack a couple specific clauses that we need to always keep in mind. So um, it says, Therefore, following the Holy Fathers, we all with one accord teach men to acknowledge one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, at once complete in Godhead and complete in manhood, truly God and truly man, consisting also of a reasonable soul and body, of one substance with the Father as regards his Godhead, and at the same time of one substance with us as regards his manhood. Like us in all respects, apart from sin, as regards his Godhead, begotten of the Father before all ages, but as yet regards his manhood, begotten for us and for our salvation of the Virgin Mary, the God-bearer, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, recognized in two natures, without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation, the distinction of natures being in no way annulled by the union, but rather the characteristics of each nature being preserved and coming together to form one person and subsistence, not as parted or separated into two persons, but one in the same Son, the only begotten Word, uh, only begotten God, the Word, Lord Jesus Christ, even as the prophets from the earliest times spoke of him, and our Lord Jesus Christ himself taught us, and the creed of the fathers was handed down to us. So um, I'll put a, a link in there because there's a lot to unpack, but there's two, um, two kinds of... Um, points that we need to tether ourselves to in this confession um, or in this definition. It's not really accurate to call it a creed, but um, you'll see uh, a couple places where it talks about one in the same son, one in the same Lord, um, one in the same person. That phrase one in the same is really central and we'll, we'll get to why that is. The other uh, is a section that I think um, gets more focus in the uh, treatments of the definition, but I actually think is not the central thrust of the definition, but it's that section in there where it says without confusion, without change, without division, and without separation. So what we have is these two points that we need to maintain. The first is that Jesus um, in the incarnation is one person. Um, and we'll talk about the different errors that came about that, that that was responding to. On the kind of the other side of the spectrum, 
it's not really a spectrum, but on the other side of the question, um, that the two natures that are that one person or that that one person is, um, do not mix or mingle. So we, we're not talking about a fusion of natures that creates a new um, nature. Sometimes you'll see uh, the technical language is tertium quid, which is just Latin for the third thing. Um, little hint, if you if you want to sound smarter, just say whatever you're saying in, in Latin, um, and it makes you sound smarter. But that third thing um, is an error that was called Eutychianism, which is what they were trying to refute at the Council of Ephesus. So we're trying to maintain this balance between two natures, one person, um, and and like we said with the Trinity, we don't have any analogy for that in nature. We don't we don't have any experience um, directly with um, a, a single person who has two natures. You know, we kind of casually talk about like my sin nature and my my kind of my new nature or my old nature and my new nature, or we talk about me being physical and me being spiritual. And so those are two natures, but that's, that's kind of just a sloppy way to talk about natures. If you remember when we talked about the Trinity, the, um, the usia is kind of the underlying fundamental substance, metaphysical substance that determines what kind of person a person is. So in the case of um, the Trinity, there's a single concrete substance that the three persons share and are in the um the incarnation we have a single one of those persons the second person of the trinity has that first nature but then in the incarnation he takes on a second nature so it's really important for us to remember that the incarnation is about addition not subtraction so that's a question we'll get to later we'll talk a little bit about kenosis and and what that means um but sometimes people want to say like well in the incarnation um, christ gave up his omnipresence he was no longer omnipresent um, and that's that's not a viable way to talk about it um, we have to maintain that what what jesus was according to his godhood he always remained and always will because one of those divine attributes we talked about was um, immutability or unchangeableness and if Jesus Christ could change, if the son could change, then he was never God in the first place, right? So that's something we have to maintain. So that's kind of a good starting point for us um, to kind of go from is that we have to maintain this this distinction between um, Christ as one person, but that one person possessing two complete natures. Um, it's a little bit sloppy sometimes when we talk about being fully God and fully man. We sometimes think of like two 100% or something like that. Um, you know, it's probably better to talk about truly God and truly man, that what of Christ was God was truly and really and completely God. There's nothing that's required to be God that was missing from uh, the son's nature. Um, and then the same in the human nature. Nothing that is required to be human was missing from the human nature that the son took on. You tracking we with me? Yeah, I'm with you. And it's really important that we be, as you said, bookended by those two things, because though it may seem like we're drawing trivial distinctions, it really has tremendous outworkings for how we understand not just the person of who Jesus is, but his ministry to us and his current work that he's accomplished and the work that he's doing right now. And when we start right. to blur those two lines, then our theology gets really funky situationally when we start to kind of process what it is that Jesus has accomplished and then what he's doing for the church right now and how we relate to him. So if you don't keep those things, like they're wonderful guideposts. So if you move too far one direction or the other, those should be a kind of a source uh, to say you're you're in error. And while it may seem like that's totally innocuous to be in error, to be outside those bounds, you're going to find that if you're slightly off at the center there, the further you, you walk away from that point, of course, you're going to be way out and it's going to cause 
I mean, I know, I've known lots of people where those distinctions haven't been as well defined and they've really kind of sense a whole new way of freedom when they understand it's been corrected in such a way that, um, you know, the work of Jesus makes a lot more sense into their lives, that the Bible is more cohesive when they understand those things properly and giving names to them is, is important and bringing those distinctions out to light is also tremendously important. Yeah. And so, um, what I found in my walk, um, you know, I think we all as Christians, just like when we talked about the Trinity there, most Christians have sort of a general vague awareness of the threeness of God and and the oneness of God and that somehow those two things interact with each other and they adhere, um, but they don't really understand what that means. And I, I think the same thing happens with Christology is that we have sort of this vague awareness that, that Christ is a person. Um, and at the same time, we have this vague awareness that he's got this dual nature thing going on, but we don't right. really have any idea what that means. And so when we come to scripture, um, we look at scripture and we get really confused in a lot of places, especially with the hypostatic union. So, um, you know, like the question of, well, how can how can the son say he doesn't know the hour of his return? Exactly. Right. How, how can the son walking through a crowd say that he um, he doesn't know who touched him? He felt the power went out, but he doesn't know who touched him. So he has to ask who touched him. And so, you know, Christians throughout the ages come up with all these all these answers, um, anything from um, downright heretical answers like, um, well, the, the son gave up his, his uh, you know, his omniscience. He legitimately had no way to know who those persons were. And like I said, if the son changes in the incarnation, if the divine nature of the son, um, if the, the if the son, according to his divine nature, is no longer omniscient, then he was never God in the first place because he he never was unchanging because he changed. Um, or, you know, sort of slightly more innocent, but I think still problematic answers like, well, the son did know, but he was kind of um, he said he didn't know because he was trying to teach a lesson or he's trying to make a point. Well, right there, we've got the son lying. And then we're all lost in our sins because he's no longer the perfect sacrifice. So in a lot of ways, um, you know, these distinctions, like we said before, you can be wrong um, and, and be wrong in an innocent fashion, and it's not going to cost you your salvation, right? We're not saved because we have proper doctrine. But at the same time, um, our doctrine, and as I hope you'll see as we unfold through the systematic theology sessions, is your doctrine is like a spider web. And when you pull out one one thread or you get the thread in the wrong place, the integrity of the whole thing is less strong. So when we pull out, we pull on this hypostatic union thread, you know, which is like a, a central thread. If you pull that out or you place it wrong, it's going to leave all these errors and, and problems in the rest of your theological system um, that sometimes you don't expect. You, you end up finding them in weird spots later on and then you have to correct. And it's, you know, it's like, um, it's like when you're you're working on a project and you make a mistake in the project early on and rather than scrapping it and starting over, you start, you know, you keep going. Well, you get to the end of the project and you finally reach a point where you um, you can't really keep compensating and you realize you should have started over in the first place. That happened to me when we were decorating the Christmas tree this last year. Um, Ashley and I are responsible for the, the Christmas tree decorations in the church. And I did the beads that wrap around the um, the tree. And I got to the bottom of it, and I, I had way too much, oh, way too many mistake. beads left over. And so I was like, you know, I'll just, um, you know, I'll just like adjust up a little bit. I'll just move everything up. And it finally got to the point where I was like, I can't. This isn't working. And I had to unwrap the whole thing, and I had to start over. 
Um, and the same thing happens in our theology with our systematics. So it's really, really important. If, if you are on the verge of checking out because this feels like some sort of arcane technical discussion, um, please don't. Please give it a shot because I, I want people to understand, especially with the incarnation, that it is so central to not only what we believe but how salvation functions um, for the Christian that we really have to nail this um, in order to protect ourselves from kind of going off course in a later, a later part of our theology. Right. This is like driving a car on an icy road such that it goes from like zero to 60, like from normal to accident, like before you can even see it. And I love your example because I've actually had conversations about that very thing where somebody might bring up the point, well, did Jesus kind of tell a white lie or did he lie by withholding information? Because surely he's God and he's omniscient, but there are certain occasions where he's saying, I just don't know. And you can right. see how if you can even posit that there is some degree of untruthfulness there, then like you said, dead in sin, like, like it just goes that yep. quickly. Yep. And it, it's really something that's important to correct. And we should probably also say like, just in passing that when we talk about systematics or systematic theology, which sounds like very grandiose, what we're not saying is we're trying to take some philosophical worldview and impose it or eisegete it, like put it a square peg into a round hole of scripture and say, this is how we want to interpret things. What we're doing instead is we're asking a question like, who is Jesus? And we are systematizing the answers from the full counsel of God's word. So we're trying to go through and collect all this information, process it in a cogent and consistent way through the scriptures to bring us meaning so that we have this theology of study of God that ultimately results in doxology or worship to God. So learning all the terms is nice and trying to articulate it in really profound ways is great, but all the technical details are just absolutely worthless if it doesn't result in us saying, appreciating God more, who he is, the work he's accomplished, acclaiming him, worshiping him, leading us to our knees so that we can just fall down in admiration for all the stuff we've acquired in our minds. So if we don't do that, I, like I'm with you, like this is so important. I hope that uh, everybody can kind of stick with it and kind of push through, take go, go over some of those hurdles um, because at the end of it is just this wonderful worship of God, a more glorious reflection of who he is and what he's done. Yeah, so let, let's get into a little bit of the meat of this because, um, you know, for me, um, the two big sort of epiphanies I had, um, I'm, I, I avoid the word revelation just by using a different languages version of it, but the two big um, epiphanies I had in seminary was getting my head as much as possible around the doctrine of the Trinity and getting my head around the doctrine of the incarnation. Because I, I think, um, and I'm, I don't think I'm on terribly shaky ground, but I think that the, the Trinity and the incarnation are really the keys that unlock Christian theology in a way that makes it coherent and in a way that um, allows you to put put you know feet to pavement and actually live this stuff out. For sure. So um, just, just to, to kind of get started is we think about thinking about uh, penal substitution, right? We haven't done the atonement. And, th and this is another thing that's hard about systematic theology is everything is so integrated with anything else that you have to kind of start with some assumptions. So thinking about penal substitution, right? Um, in the, um, the 1200s, I think, or the, the Middle Ages, um, St. Anselm of Canterbury writes a book called Why the God-Man? And his um, approach, I think, was wrong. But his, his desire was to write um, a treatise that would basically explain using logic, um, almost exclusively, but using logic alone um, to explain why it would be that there needed to be an incarnation. Why did God have to become man? 
And his answer, roughly speaking, is that only um, the the debt that was owed to God, and he talked in terms of honor, so it's not exactly the same as, as penal substitution, which is in terms of penalty. But the debt that was owed to God, see, we're talking about atonement, which we weren't going to do. But the, the debt that was owed to God um, could only be paid by a human because it was humans that incurred that debt. So an angel couldn't do it. Um, God, in abstract, kind of in in as God couldn't do it, um, the sacrifices of the Old Testament pointed to what God would do, but they weren't sufficient because an animal couldn't pay for that. And so God had to become man in order to make that payment. But on the flip side, a man couldn't make that payment on his own because even if he lived a perfect life, that's just what he owed to God. So he was never accumulating any excess merit or excess honor in order to, um, to be able to pay for other people's sins. And so God himself had to take on uh, humanity and become man in order to make an infinite, a payment of infinite worth to be able to pay for the sins of humanity. So we start with that question of why the God-man. And what we don't realize, though, is that beyond just the fact that it had to be a man that made that payment, the relationship that Christ has with the Father according to his humanity um, is a model and an image that we can look at to understand our relationship with the father as well. So not only did Christ have to become man in order to accomplish salvation, but in order for us to understand and be able to act out and live out our salvation, we also had to see Jesus interacting with the father. And so we can, we can kind of talk about natures as ways of existing or ways of doing things. Right. So Jesus has a divine nature and he has a set of capacities and abilities and attributes that he as a person has from that uh, from that nature. But then he takes on a second nature and that second nature also comes with a set of capacities and abilities and attributes. And in the case of his humanity, it comes with a set of limitations as well. And so that answers a lot of the questions we, we come up against in the scripture. And these are questions that the church wrestled with in the early church. That's why we ended up where we are, because they were asking questions like, um, how is it that the impassable, uh, unsuffering God could suffer and die on the cross? How can, we, how can we hold those two things to be true? And the answer was, because he doesn't suffer as God. He doesn't suffer according to his divine nature. He suffers as man, according right. to his human nature. And so, you know, sometimes we answer those questions in a way that practically leads out to be Nestorianism. And Nestorianism was the error that, roughly speaking, the error that Christ was two persons. And so, you know, someone asks, well, how is it that, how is it that um, Jesus could say he didn't know? And the, you know, there was the heretical answer of, well, he, he just got rid of his omniscience in the incarnation. Then there was the kind of misguided answer of, well, he, he just kind of was telling a white lie or he was illustrating a purpose. And then there's the heretical answer that results in him being two persons. And we say, well, Jesus's divine nature knew, but Jesus's human nature didn't. And what we've done subtly there without realizing is we've started to treat those natures as though they were persons. Right. So instead of saying, and it may seem um, nitpicky and pedantic to, to talk this way and to insist on talking this way, but instead of saying that Jesus's divine nature knew and his human nature didn't, we should say Jesus as a single person knew according to his divine nature and didn't know according to his human nature. And because those are two different things and two different ways of knowing, we're not saying there's a contradiction. That, you know, there are, Jesus has a, a way of knowing things that's a divine way of knowing things. 
right? We talked about in the first episode that God's knowledge is not just quantitatively greater, but it's an an entirely different type of knowledge. He knows things in a completely different way than we know things. So Jesus knows the day and the hour. He knows who touched him. He knew all those things. He knows all things according to his divine nature in that way, in a divine way. But when we come to his humanity, he knows he doesn't know things and he does know things in a different way. So Jesus isn't omniscient according to his human nature, right? Um, to, to kind of think about the ridiculousness of what that would be, Jesus at one point, according to his humanity, was two cells in his mother's womb, right? As far as we can tell, his development, the, the beginning of his development, his conception was supernatural. But from that point forward, everything progressed the way it normally would. So at some point, Jesus was two cells in his mother's womb. Now, are we going to say that that those two cells, which don't have a brain, somehow knew, according to humanity, all things? It just the the logic of that just doesn't work. It's just nonsense. Um, so we have to we have to really think through the implications of this. Right, and this is why we usually fall back on saying things like "fully God" and "fully human" because we're not being trite. It's that this is like a whole other realm of logic that, in a sense, just like when we discuss the Trinity, that we have nothing to compare it to. So we go. We're on shaky ground when we try to start to parse out the pieces because we understand that we are separate and distinct beings or have separate and distinct or clear lines of demarcation with our knowledge. And that's just not the case here. Right. Right. And so, um, you know, that brings us to another area of, um, you know, we, we talk about, we again, we haven't talked about covenant theology yet. But in Reformed theology, um, and I think more so in sort of Presbyterian lines of Reformed theology than in um, Baptist lines of theology, um, the, the idea of covenant is really the center of how salvation functions. And so broadly speaking, there's a covenant of um, works in the garden, which is going to sound strange to Protestant ears, and we'll talk a little bit about it in a different episode. But there's a covenant of works, which Adam was under. And Adam, um, he, he is given this promise that if he um, works the garden and accomplishes and is obedient to what God has, then he will be given access to the tree of life and will um, confirm his original state of righteousness, which was mutable, which could change. He will confirm it into an unchanging state, and that will be his reward. He fails, and so Christ comes, and we have now what's called the covenant of grace. And the covenant of grace is that Christ will fulfill the terms of the covenant of works on our behalf and then will give us the blessings of that covenant of works. So Christ comes as the second Adam. That's another way to talk about Christology is to kind of go through the different titles of Christ. Um, Christ comes as the second Adam, and what that means is he comes as a human to earn the righteousness that Adam should have earned for his progeny. He earns that righteousness as a man. Right. He doesn't he doesn't um, he's not Superman. Right. It's not Clark Kent in high school playing football and using his superpowers kind of covertly to win the game without anybody knowing it. Right. This is Christ coming and suffering and struggling and fighting and working hard as a man to be obedient to the law. He has to learn the law the way you and I would by reading the scriptures. He accomplishes that perfectly because the only thing that's different in terms of our natures between me and Christ's human nature is that Christ's human nature is not affected by sin. He doesn't have original sin to deal with. He's not totally depraved like I am. So he accomplishes that as man, and then he goes before his father, and he claims that righteous reward, and then he says, I did this on behalf of my people. 
right? Where Adam would have gone before the father had he completed his task and said, I've done this on, on my behalf and on behalf of my people. And all of us would have enjoyed the benefits of Adam's obedience. The same way we, um, we suffer the consequences of his disobedience. Right. So even, even something that seems as disconnected as kind of this abstract covenant theology really is grounded and rooted in the fact that Christ has these two natures and that he interacts with the Father on two different levels, right? He has the permanent, unchanging, perfect, harmonious union with the Father that he's always had because of his divine nature, that perichoretic union that we talked about last time. And he also has this earned righteousness, this merited righteousness that he has before the Father as a man. And that's the same righteousness we have before the Father because the, the Son gives that to us. The Father looks on us and he sees Christ's human righteousness instead of our own filthiness. And if you, if the Lord it opens your eyes to, to consider some of this, what I've noticed in my own life is just how brilliant it is. Not just in terms of the conception of bringing this plan into effect, but thinking that this is, in fact, if we understand our theology appropriately, as you've been defining this is the only way. And I really like the way that uh, John Owen said this. This is from the glory of Christ. He writes, The mediator could not be God himself as God only, for a mediator does not mediate for only one. But if he was God, then he could be said to be biased, for there is only one God, and man is not God. Man needs a mediator to represent him, just as God needs a mediator to represent him. So whatever God might do in the work of reconciliation, yet as God, he could not do it as mediator. And he's saying exactly what you just said, that there needed to be a true mediator representing both sides. I, I really like, I said this before, but how Job and his suffering kind of calls out to his really unfortunate friends by saying, if, if only there was somebody that could come and put their arm around my shoulder and around God's shoulder as if to reconcile, to help bridge this gap. And that's yeah. exactly what Jesus does. But he can only do that if he's, as you've been saying, fully God and fully man in every conceivable way and in ways that we can't conceive as well. Right. And so sometimes the the accusation is leveled um, that this is kind of like an abstract philosophical concept that gets overlaid on the scriptures. So I just want to read something. Um, the, the book of Hebrews um, I, I know everybody loves Romans, and I love Romans, um, and we shouldn't pit Scripture against Scripture, and that's not what I'm trying to do. But the book of Romans is usually seen as like the, the central theological treatise of the New Testament. And I really actually think the book of Hebrews is more of a theological treatise than that. Um, I think that the book of Hebrews has more uh, packed into it in terms of sort of raw doctrine than Romans even does. Um, and they're real similar in length. Um, so just reading out of um, Hebrews chapter 5, um, starting in verse 7, it says, In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So, so looking at this, if we don't have something resembling the orthodox doctrine of the incarnation, we absolutely can't make any sense of this, right? In the days of his flesh, what does that even mean? Yeah, well, exactly. We know from the first, you know, from John 1, we know that that's the word becoming flesh. 
um, he offered up prayers and supplications to him who was able to save him from death. Well, couldn't he save himself from death? Well, yes, he could have. But as a human, he had to rely on God in order to preserve his life. Um, he was heard because of his reverence. So he wasn't heard because of his natural union with the Father in, in his divine nature. He was heard because of his obedience and his faithfulness as a man. Although he was son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. So as a human, although he was a son, he was already God's son, according to his divine nature. He learned obedience through what he suffered. So he learned and became God's son through um, obedience, according to his human nature. Being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation. He already was perfect, so how can we talk about him being made perfect? Well, we can talk about his human nature being made perfect, and his human nature— in his humanity, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Um, he obviously, salvation comes from the Lord. So he already was the source of salvation according to his divinity. But in his humanity, he was made perfect and became the source of eternal salvation. So like I said, not only from a, um, from a point of understanding who God is, but if we want to understand the scriptures and we want to really not have a scripture that's totally incoherent, we need to recognize that this doctrine is interwoven throughout the whole thing. Um, even the book of Hebrews, you know, the first the first chapter, the first chapter and a half or so is basically Jesus is God, right? And then we start to get into the next couple chapters, and it's basically Jesus is man. And then we get to chapter 5, and it starts to interweave how those two things interact together and how that accomplishes our salvation, culminating in the fact that Christ is our high priest who can sympathize with us because he's one of us. And he's like his brothers in all ways except sin. Um Really, this is kind of like, in my mind, this is the loftiest, most glorified, grandiose, and encouraging theology that we can really grasp onto is not just who Christ is, but as Luther would say, who Christ is for us. Yeah, right. right? That's a central part of the, the creed is that Christ for us and for our salvation became man. It's not just, oh, I think I'll become man. He did it for a specific purpose, and that purpose was for our salvation. Right on. Yeah, I to I'm totally down with that. Like that should get us all stoked up. Like I just want to run through a wall right now, it, just because that is so deep and so devotional. And it's not as if you know, in, in Jesus we have all of these wonderful, as you just kind of dissected all of them, all these wonderful contrarieties. And we often think of the word contradiction to mean two mutually exclusive ideas that cannot mesh at all. Whereas like a contrariety is two things that might seem contradictory at first but actually can coexist in harmony quite easily. So for instance, I really love music. I listen to music a lot. The Lord has given me such a great appreciation and a love and a passion for music. At the same time, I hate musicals. Like I would rather walk in oncoming <laughs> traffic than watch any musical. Like maybe, I mean, like there's some are okay. Like Les Mis is okay. I know Hamilton is like a big musical and I work in banking. So like that, that is a, like a weird fusion for me. But like generally speaking, like I would rather go to the dentist or almost any other place than to sit down in front of in front of a, a musical. Um, so we have in Christ like this this wonderful as you just talked about like nothing could be added to that because it was it was really well done. Um, and it's not as if in addition like as we're processing that it's not as if Jesus gets lets us get away with not processing that because he gives at least in like Matthew sixteen that. Very famous question, which is really like an eternally contemporary question. Who do you say that I am? So that is something that all Christians, all Christ followers need to answer. And we may think that we can get away with 
living in such a way where we don't, you know, it's too hard to think about and it just kind of stresses me out or makes my mind do a somersault. So I'm not going to process it. But as we've already said, every outworking from that point on really speaks to how we understand who Jesus is. And we can't get away from answering that question. And that's the question that divides everybody. That's the question that brings division at all kinds of levels, even when we fail to recognize it or we don't want to. So for instance, for whatever reason, uh, the Mormons love to come and hang out with us, um, <laughs> which is great, actually. It's possible that like it's the best of both situations because they think they're converting me and I think I'm converting them. But when when they first started coming by, I was really focused on, well, let's like redefine all the terms. like Because, you know, they're using a lot of the same language. They're like, oh, yeah, we agree with you and we read your scriptures. And, and they want to, on the surface, present this really strange, like cohesive family that, yeah, we go to different churches and we'd love for you to become Mormon. You'll see why. And, you know, you'll, you'll read the Book of Mormon and you'll feel awesome on the inside and then you'll want to become Mormon. Um, but the further we got our discussions, I realized all we need to do was ask the question, who do you say that Jesus is? And the, you know, the first response for them is, well, he's you know, like a spirit brother with Lucifer and he's a created being. And right away then we've, we've just wiped the table. Like we've just set the whole thing out in front of us. And we realize that there are hurdles that are distinct. And now all of a sudden we can't just say, well, we're basically the same. We're just talking about different things, but really we're talking about the same person. We can't even get to like the same, uh, same sense of revelation. So this thing is like really, I think, tremendously important. Yeah. And I think, um, you know, that really is the same for Jehovah's Witnesses, too, is that um, and really all of these early Christological heresies, which I know we said we were going to talk about them, but I think we're probably going to skip that. All of these Christologies center around the identity of the second person of the Trinity and how he became a part of creation in order to redeem creation. So I think that's great is when you're talking to a Muslim a Muslim, a Mormon, a Jew, um, a Jehovah's Witness, you know, one is Pentecostal, anyone who's not a Christian, an atheist, um, it really always comes back to who do you say Jesus is? And, um, you know, Jesus himself tells us that he's the way, the truth, and the life, right? He tells us that he's the only son of the Father. Um, and he tells us that the only way to, uh, to reach the Father is to worship the Son. So, you know, you've got in the early church— um, the, the Christians are being persecuted by the Romans for saying that Jesus is king. And you've got him being persecuted by the Jews um, for saying uh, and for worshiping a man and calling him Yahweh. Right. So this right. this question of who do you say Jesus is, is really central. And you're right. We can't get away with not answering it. And it's impossible not to because to not answer it is to answer it. Right. If you refuse to answer it, then you're not acknowledging that Christ is God and Lord and deserves your allegiance. Yeah, that's absolutely right on. One of my favorite verses of all time when I think about Jesus himself is Paul writing to, to the church in Colossae when he says, For in him, that is Jesus, the whole fullness of deity dwells bodily. I, I feel like our ears should just explode when we hear that. Yeah. Because what I love about that is like if I if somebody wants to hire me to do an interpretation of that verse or like a full Bible translation, like Crossway, hit me up. Because uh, the way I interpret that, so Colossians 2.9, Jesus is God's selfie. Like, honestly, that's what I think. It's, it's here you have how good of God uh, to send himself in bodily form to be the revelation. So even as you were talking about Muslims, I was thinking, you know, for Muslims, like Muhammad is a prophet who's bringing the revelation. He's not even the revelation. And right. that, that's the same for all the others, for Joseph Smith or for Buddha. And here we have Jesus 
as the way and the truth, meaning he's not presenting just a good idea or some new kind of philosophy. He is God and he is the truth in person. Right. And that is like incredible. Honestly, like I'm surprised our ears are still working because that truth yeah. should just like wipe us out, like just send us to our knees. And so one of the things that I wanted to ask you about that I've often thought is when we look at the passage in Matthew 16, where Jesus asks his disciples, who do you say that I am? And then when we're looking at, let's say like Luke, I think it's like Luke 24, when uh, this is after Jesus' death on the cross, after his resurrection, and we've got the two disciples, they're on their way on to Emmaus on the road. And Jesus right. kind of connects with them. Uh, they're, they don't know who he is. They're actually prevented from seeing who he is. But in both of these cases, there's something that always equally floors me. So we have this identity of Christ. He's asking, who do you say that I am? Peter gives a response and Jesus is basically like right on, but you did not get that on your own. And similar, and similarly, when we're talking about the road to Emmaus, basically, I mean, that passage is famous for the fact that Jesus is hanging out. I think it's Cleopas. Jesus says like, what are you guys talking about? And Cleopas yeah. is like, are you kidding me? This is also from yeah. that translation. Like, seriously, are you kidding me? Yeah. And, and so Jesus just is like, boom, Bible study time. Like, I'm just going to open up the entire scriptures and explain. Like, he, Jesus is basically like, who has two thumbs and a Bible written about them? This guy. <laughs> and so he opens the whole thing up. And then later on, there's that famous verse, like Cleopas says, did our hearts not burn while he explained this to us? And so here's that long way to kind of get all this prolegomena for this question. It seems to me there's this really equal pairing. We have the identity of Christ, but also that God makes it clear that he is the one who has authority over the full disclosure of that identity to whomever right. he chooses. So yeah. like, what, what do you think about that? Am I off base with that? No. Uh, first of all, the fact that Jesus has two thumbs is really good Christology. Yeah. Um, second, second of all, I think that's absolutely right, is the disclosure of God is always only ever a self-disclosure, right? So the Father discloses himself by sending the Son to, um, to be that revelation. And so, of course, you know, we, we would expect when, when the disciples— this is something that I think we get wrong a lot, right? We see pictures— um, don't imagine it because this is a reform broadcast, but we see pictures of that are purportedly of Christ that really aren't right. And he's got these halos or his face is shining or there's, you know, there's like a spotlight coming down from heaven. Um, or we even think about like the, the transfiguration, right? Where, where Jesus shines and we think, well, that must be like his divine nature poking through or peeking through. But in reality, no, because we've got that, that whole point about the, the natures are not commingled. They're not confused. They're not, um, the, the attributes of the divine nature do not cross over to the human nature. So when they look at Jesus, they see a regular man. They don't see somebody who glows. He's not floating, you know, a foot above the ground and, and hovering alongside of them. Um, so when they see him on the road, um, you know, whether whether it was sort of supernaturally held back from them that they couldn't see him or just it's the last person you'd expect to see. And, you know, when you see someone out of contact, sometimes um, you can't recognize them at first. We don't know exactly why it was they don't recognize him. Um, but the fact is that when he's revealed, it's because he's revealed himself. 
Right. Um, whether that is a supernatural revelation, which, you know, what was what we see with Peter, or whether there's um, just some sort of natural recognition on certain cues in, in the disciples on the road to Emmaus, you know, in the breaking of the bread. Could it have been that that was just a familiar thing and that was finally like the context clue? Maybe. Um, I'm of the opinion that, it you know, it was a more supernatural revelation. But yeah, I think you're absolutely right, is that God's God's revelation is always a self-disclosure. And so the, the disclosure of Christ is always also a, a self-disclosure. And I think, you know, if you're struggling with this concept, um, this, this sort of technical stuff, pray about it. I think that's something we miss a lot when we're doing theology is, exactly. um, you know, you can't book learn your way into the kingdom. You can't, you can't really book learn your way into understanding theology correctly either. There's got to be an element of prayer that's associated with it too. So if you're struggling to understand this, then pray about it. Ask God to reveal to you and to illuminate the scriptures um, to show you who his son is and how the incarnation functions as much as our tiny little limited brains can get our, whole, our heads around. Amen. I love that because that has been a lesson, especially recently, that has been so instructive to me. This idea that... It's not like I'm not smart enough or I have to work hard or I don't have the right kind of intellect or the exposure to the right kind of training. And this was the same thing I felt after having lots of good conversations with uh, the Mormon guys was that I was just praying that, that, Lord, would you open their eyes to the glory of Jesus Christ, your son? Would you be the one? Because you are, in fact, the only one who can bring that kind of realization. So there's this responsibility that we have, which I think we've talked about before, to be stewards of the gospel and to proclaim that in such a way that's powerful and effective, but at the same time realizing that the act of saving belongs entirely to God and the act of disclosure of seeing the glory of Jesus Christ, his son, also belongs fully to him. So the best thing we can do is to pray hard for that, that God would in fact continue to open our eyes and that he would open the eyes of so many unbelieving people who desperately need to see that, but we cannot win them. We cannot force them to see it or open their eyes in such a way by merely really good argumentation or having using flannel graph or I'm trying to think of like what other people still use flannel graph. I have never actually in my life seen a flannel graph. Oh, there used to be some flannel graph in the church. Like actually we would go in like, during uh, the like not Sunday Sundays and like use the final graph. That's pretty funny. My mother is just learning this about this for the first time, probably. Yeah. On this podcast. So uh, just email Jesse at his regular email. For <laughs> so um, we got a couple questions. Um, we're gonna run out of time here a little bit. So why don't why don't we fly through these questions um, first? We'll Let's save um, the big question for Chuck for the last one because it's kind of a good how do we apply Christology to the scriptures um, question. So if you want to hit the other the other two and we can hit those quick and then we'll talk about Chuck's question. I just want to ask this question because like I said, this word is like a word I hate <laughs> to say in public because I just feel like it's a giant word. I always trip it up. But uh, so Thaddeus, which is also just a sweet name, by the way. Yes. I'd like to know if he goes by Thad because or like Thad Daddy. I don't know. It just seems like it's, it's right. Thad Daddy Johnson right there. So Thad Daddy Johnson asks, what's the big deal with Apollinarianism. Okay, so, so what Apollinarianism, is that yeah, Apollinarianism is one of those early Christology errors that we um, didn't talk about yet. Um, but Apollinarianism basically said a human person is made up of three parts. There's a, a human body, there's a human soul, and there's a human rational soul. Now, those are weird terms, but basically it's you're a body, a spirit, and a mind. And so what he, what Apollinarius taught is that in the incarnation, what we have is a human body and a human spirit, and that the logos kind of becomes the mind of that um, spirit, 
or of that that human body and spirit. And what the problem with this is, is what you end up with is um, our minds aren't redeemed, right? So um, the one of the Cappadocian fathers, I don't remember off the top of my head who it was. I want to say it was probably Gregory of Nazianzus. But he said, um, that which is not assumed cannot be healed. Um, there's a lot of different ways it gets translated. But what he's getting at is that Christ takes on our nature in order to heal and restore our nature. So if there's a part of our nature, and in Apollinarius's case, um, or Apollinaris's case, um, the mind was not taken on. The human mind of there was no human mind of Christ. So the human mind is not redeemed because the, the Son didn't take that on in the incarnation. So that's kind of the problem. Now, this is not an ancient heresy that's died out, right? William Lane Craig, who's probably one of the um, one of the more famous um, apologists in the Christian world right now, um, his um, model of Christology, I believe the book is called Philosophical Foundations for the Christian Worldview. He calls his model Neo-Apollinarianism. And um, other than a few... Um, anthropological tweaks to his his understanding of what a human is um it's the exact same thing and so he teaches that um you know all of the sufficient attributes to be human the logos already possessed except a body and so all that the logos really took on in the incarnation is a body um and this is the kind of stuff that we have apologists teaching and, and professors in christian colleges teaching so it's really not a small deal um it's a it's a big deal so that's the big deal with apollinarianism also heresy also heresy I'm down with that. All right. Next question. So this one is, well, it's another one about doctrine. So this is from Jake. What, why is the doctrine of ubiquity incorrect? Because the Lutherans believe it. Next question. Um, It is wrong. And the Lutherans do believe it. Um, The the reason that the reformed would say ubiquity, um, which is really um, sort of another way to say omnipresence um, is um, incorrect is the, you know, we talked about the Chalcedonian definition or the Chalcedonian definition, and one of those four negations in the middle was that the, the natures do not commingle. They're not confused. And um, this really centers around the doctrine of the Eucharist and what happens in the Lord's Supper. Um, and the, the um, Lutherans want to say that the, um, the real physical body of Christ is present. Now, the Reformed look at that and say, wait a second. Um, Christ is a human. He's a, probably a pretty average adult male. So he, you know, he might be, you know, for a first century Jew, he might be like five, seven. He probably weighed like 160 pounds, 170 pounds at the most. So how do we have 170 pounds of flesh that is in every Christian church in the world on a Sunday morning? Right. Um, and, and their answer is, well, he's God. He can be everywhere. And the reform look at it and go, wait a second, that's a violation of Chalcedon because you've now just made his human nature omnipresent. And there's a lot of technical ways they explain it, but they basically go, well, yeah, that's fine. Um, And the reform say no. So the reformed root their understanding of why ubiquity is incorrect in the idea that Christ's human nature does not become divinized in the incarnation. It remains human. It remains it retains all of the essential qualities of a human nature. So Christ, according to his human nature, is the same human person that we are. His humanity is not substantively different than our humanity. And my humanity is localized and can't be, you know, other than eating too much, it, it expands sort of naturally, but it can't be expanded um, infinitely to, to be in every church in America. I'm just thinking if that would be like instead of a, like a diagnosis of like obesity, if it was ubiquity. Ubiquity, yes. Ubi- there's a ubiquity epidemic in uh, Lutheran churches. Yeah, like my, my doctor was like, you have so much ubiquity, you need to really cut back on the sweets. 
P.S. We love you, Jordan Cooper. Absolutely. Yeah. I in so for both of those, for me, it's about sometimes I always have this sense that sometimes we can just get too cute, and there's a there's a mystery and there's a respectability yeah. and there's again this not con- we don't want to avoid confusion of all of these identities, but at the same time, I feel like it's just easy to get too cute and both of those for me are just getting a little bit too cute does that make sense yeah yeah so last question from chuck who is like this is a great question like he is a question machine so let me just read the whole thing because it's really good after the resurrection chuck writes we see jesus walk into locker rooms and disappear i think he's referring to luke 24 the end of the passage about the road to emmaus do these kind of events have any bearing on how we understand christ's continuing humanity and its physicality or do we see them through the same lens as the miracles Jesus performed prior to the crucifixion? Go. Go. Uh, three minutes. So so this is a really great question. And I think, um, you know, there are different ways to answer this. So I love John Calvin. Um, I think of, uh, apart from, um, you know, living reform theologians that I've, I've experienced the living voice of, John Calvin has probably been the most influential. And um, I haven't been able to find exactly where it is, but it's been reported to me by good historical sources that John Calvin answered the question about Jesus walking into locked rooms by saying he climbed in through the window and the disciples didn't (laughs) notice it. And the reason that he was doing that, I mean, it sounds funny, Uh, but the reason the reason that he made that conclusion is because he wanted to maintain, you know, that real humanity of Christ. So we have to be careful um, to do that in ways that I love John Calvin, but that aren't ridiculous. Right. Um, that is a ridiculous conclusion to draw. Um, I'm actually apt to say he may not have ever said it because I haven't actually been able to trace exactly where he said that. But um, the way that I would answer this question is that um, Christ did miracles as a human according to the, um, the union he had with the Holy Spirit. Now, there are some people who take that position. Um, you know, you think of, I want to say, is it Mike Mike Bickle? That out of, um, not Mike Bickle. No, it might be Mike Bickle. Out of um, IHOP, um, some of the stuff at Bethel Reading, where they want to say that um, Jesus did miracles by the power of the Spirit, and so you have that same Spirit in you, so you can do all of those miracles too. Now, we don't want to go that direction. There's also something called Logos Christology, or, um, sorry, spirit Christology that um, basically says that the son was divine because of his union with the Holy Spirit rather than being divine in himself. So even though some of the stuff I'm about to say might sound like that, that's not what I'm talking about. But when Jesus walked on water, for example, we can't, um, I, I, don't, well, I shouldn't say we can't, but I don't think we should affirm that Jesus was, like I said earlier, he was like, cheating he was like superman um walking on the water playing football and winning because of that or or anything like that he was um empowered by the holy spirit to accomplish those miracles miracles um in a very similar if not the same way that elijah or elisha um did miracles right jesus raised the dead but when we look at the the lazarus account which is the most explicit and extensive thing he didn't raise the dead on his own power on his, he didn't go in there and say i have the authority to you know for you to wake up what he did is he went in there and he said father i know you hear me but i'm day i'm saying this for the benefit of those who are around me and he prayed to the father and then he commanded lazarus to rise and the father of the spirit raised him from the dead and the son according to his divinity did too but when we look at jesus doing a miracle it's a human person or a human um, actor 
who is engaging that miracle by the power of the Spirit. So when we talk about how this plays in here is, um, you know, the Spirit has the ability for to make me walk through a wall, right? God could rearrange things such that I could walk through a wall or he could transport me from one place to another, right? With Philip with the Ethiopian eunuch. Um, there's this weird passage where it, it seems like Philip teleported from one place to another. Um, there's actually, it's funny because some Catholic priests actually claim to have the ability to translocate, which is what they say that is. So they think they can do that too. I would like to see them do that. That'd me be too. Interesting. The original but, teleportation. Right. But the fact is that the spirit could do those things. So I think they have a bearing on how we understand Christ's continuing humanity and its physicality in that we affirm that Christ has a continuing humanity and a physicality that is glorified. So it's not the same as ours currently, but it's the same as our glorified humanity will be. Now, will we have the ability to walk through walls and teleport from one place to another? Maybe, I guess. I hope possibly. so. Um, you know, Conrad talking about spaceship uh, penguin or whatever, planet penguin. Um you know, we may have the ability to move through space in different ways than we do now. I don't know. I don't think we will, but we might. Um, so I would say the answer to your question is we see them through the same lens as mir- as the miracles Jesus performs prior to the crucifixion, right? Jesus walks on water, and we forget that a few verses later, so does Peter, because he, in faith, is acting according to the power of the Spirit to be obedient to the command that God has for him. So likewise, we see Jesus walking on the water in obedience to the Father's command to to reveal the Father the way he does. Right. I'm down with that. Yeah. But that's still, I mean, there's still questions that we have to answer with that, right? So on the, the walking on water account, the very next, you know, Mark asks the question through the lips of the, the apostles, what manner of man is this? Right. Right. And the implied answer is he's not just a man. He's also God. Um, so I'm still working out a little bit exegetically how some of that works, um, because we have to be cautious with the text, but I think generally we should view most of the miracles Christ did, including these sort of spatial miracles, we might want to call them, um, after the resurrection. Um, we, we have to look at those, I think, in a similar light. Agreed. Either way, we can be sure what we're seeing here is the power of God manifested in human form. And that's just brilliant, no matter which way you cut it. All right. Well, um, I think that should probably wrap us up. Um, if you like Audible, you can use our trial code, uh, uh, audibletrial.com slash brotherhood. But uh, we are already way over our time, and uh, we want to make sure that we uh, don't overload your brains. So, Jesse, do you have any closing thoughts for us? No, just go love Jesus. Love him more. Yes. Pray to pray to see the glory of Jesus this week in a new way. Absolutely. All right. Well, that'll do it. We'll see you next week. What if I'm far from home? Oh, brother, I will hear you call. What if I lose it all? Oh, sister, I will help you out. <laughs> it's like we forgot how to podcast, guys. It's weird. <laughs> it's been it's been so long.